Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to My Perfect Console. I'm Simon Parkin and in each episode I invite a guest to pick the five video games they would like to immortalise on their very own fictional games machine. Perhaps it was the first game they received as a birthday present or the one that so obsessed them it caused them to fail their exams or maybe it was the only thing that got them through a difficult breakup. Games, a bit like songs, often become powerfully attached to a particular moment in our lives. When we return to them, they can become warp points to the past. So join me, Simon Parkin, for my perfect console. My guest today is an English video game designer and programmer. In 1984, he designed The Entrepreneur, a simulation game about running a startup company. When it sold just two copies, however, my guest left the world of video games and began exporting cans of baked beans to the Middle East instead. When the computer manufacturer Commodore mistook this venture for a software company with a similar name, my guest signed a deal to design a database system for the Amiga. This eventually led to the founding of Bullfrog Productions, where my guest designed Populous, the first so-called god game which went on to sell more than four million copies. Many more successes followed, 1994's Theme Park, 1997's Dungeon Keeper, and then after he founded Lionhead Studios, the multi-million selling Fable series. My guest is no stranger to controversy either. His more recent experimental work at 22 Cans, the company he founded in 2012, has sometimes been accused of over-promising and under-delivering. He remains, nonetheless, a legendary, if elusive, figure in the UK games industry. Welcome, Peter Molyneux. Hello. Hi, Peter. How are you? That was a very good summary there, Simon. You managed to distill the whole of my life into a paragraph, <laughs> which is so rude, to say the least. <laughs> well, um, I'm, I'm interested to ask you, Peter, there was a time when you were you were pretty firmly in the, in the public spotlight. You were given a Lifetime Achievement Award at GDC, became a BAFTA Fellow. You were awarded an OBE and you were often in the press talking about whatever it was you were working on. And then, uh, you know, a while ago in about 2015, you retreated from public life, telling The Guardian, I will not speak to the press again. From from your perspective, what, what led to that change? Well, I think it, I think for me, it was the world. The world had moved on from when I first started in computer games. There was a, a fascination in the creative process. And I used to kind of specialise, if that's the right word, in talking about talking about the games that I made before they were finished. Mm. And, you know, as as any unfinished project 
goes, you know, quite often things change in that development process. And I think people mistook that as being promises of features in the game. And I just realized, I think, in 2015 that really the, the ability to talk you know, openly on and honestly about the design process just wasn't what it was. So uh, I, like many other creatives, you, you know, kind of retreated from that, that kind of incredibly bright spotlight, which just seemed to in the end burn. I, I, I miss it. I miss <laughs> that fantastic feeling of going into a room of of tired journalists that showed like E3 and exciting them about a game which is not yet finished. But um, it, it's given me a hell of a lot more free time to work on my existing projects. Well, yeah, I wanted to ask you about free time because I think, you know, a lot of the controversy had its root in this particular interview that happened with the website RPS. It was a highly emotionally charged uh, dialogue, I'd say. And, you know, Tim Schafer came out later in support of you and I reread it actually this week. It's quite a difficult read, I think. And they, they, part, partly that's because there was this section where you talk about working 16-hour days and missing your son's school play and being shouted at by your wife for staying in the office too long. And has that rather brutal lifestyle changed for you in subsequent years? Yeah, you know, it's amazing how the world has changed and it's even more amazing how the computer games industry has changed. The computer games industry in the 1990s and 2000s was fueled by something called crunch. <clears throat> and, and that's where we'd all work together in the office and create, you know, the hopefully the final stages of the project. And that could go on for many, many, many weeks. And I've worked on a game called black and white where we crunched for nine months that's just what every studio did back then and then there was this realization there are kind of two realizations uh, simultaneously happening the first realization was we're all getting older we've all got families we've all got you know children we just cannot have this kind of 20 somethings lifestyle of just burning the candle at both ends that was the first real realization. The second realization was that we, you know, we the computer games industry is here for the long term. You can't burn people out, yeah. yourself included, by crunching them to death at the end of the project. So now uh, we have a rule at the company I work for at the moment called Twenty Two Cancer. We we just don't do any crunch past six o'clock uh, in the evening. And that work-life balance is a lot, a lot more healthy. So, but I, I, I tell you what, Simon. I mean, I know crunch sounds awful, but there were some wonderful moments. You know, when you're all working together so hard mm. and trying to invent things that have never been invented before. There's there is a magic that that definitely isn't quite there when you're not not crunching. I wouldn't go back to it, man. No, yeah, yeah. I'm, I don't want you to get into trouble for defending crunch. I don't think you're doing that. But yeah, I understand what you're saying. That there's almost like a. I remember reading a piece about you know sort of working in a kitchen and how everyone pushed together and that sense of almost like being on a submarine or something. <laughs> Just every <laughs> exactly, and also 
I mean, you know, for me, and this is just personally for me, when you're doing something creative and you're you're coding it, you get your mind into this mindset, which is, you know, where everything is. You know, you're able to focus completely, and having to say, right, that's it, I'm not focused anymore, and go, you know, go home or do whatever, means you've got to take the effort to put yourself back in that mindset again. So. It it um there there is a there was a magic that happens, but you know, like everything in the past, you look at it through rose tinted spectacles. <laughs> there were some awful, awful things that happened as well. Yeah, I mean, well, for the sake of balance, what was some of the cost of uh, of that lifestyle? It it, it was. I, I think the the first iterate, the first some meaningful cost came when when the team started to have children and the realization that. Those you know those people were you know weren't seeing their children and then their wives and mm. and girlfriends were were under totally understandably being incredibly um, incredibly punished by this this culture. I mean, I'll give you an example. We I worked with this genius coder called Jean Claude Cotier, and he had come over to the UK to work with us and uh, with his wife. His wife couldn't speak English particularly well. They just had a first baby and we were crunching. You know, uh, it was an incredibly, uh, you know, challenging time for him. Yeah. And uh, which, which game was this? This was a game called Black and White. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. well, uh, you know, people will be interested because you haven't really been speaking to the press for quite some years. Can you, are you able to talk about what you're what you're up to at the moment? You you know, like you you say there, you you work for Twenty Two Cans, the company you founded in twenty twelve. To you still have staff there, I can see. Uh, so, can you say what you're working on? Yeah, so I can't say the project we're working on. We're just starting on a new project, which is codenamed Moat. That's an acronym. Which I won't give you the the full name of, and you know it's as wonderful as it's ever been. It, you know, they when you start a new project, they you 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 know there's just a world of possibilities ahead of you, and so we're we're just we're dipping our toe, getting the early prototypes working. There's 25 of us really focused on you know the, those those early prototypes, which are really exciting. In days gone by. I would have already announced the whole game design to the press and probably said, you know, it was going to be the most brilliant game of all time. Um, but, uh, you know, this is going to be kept under wraps for, you know, a considerable amount of time now. Fair enough. I'm I'm definitely not going to push you on that. That sounds very wise to me. <laughs> okay, Peter. So the format of the podcast is uh, I've asked you to pick the five video games you want to put on your ideal uh, fictional video game console uh, you've picked five fantastic games i would say can you just tell me how did you go about making these choices i mean yes i mean it it it, it i think the human brain is hard doing any lists but you know doing this list is it's not picking you know you're not short of wonderful pantheon of of, of games there's just so many which i could have picked but the ones I did pick were the ones that meant something emotionally to me, and kind of led to life-changing, uh, life-changing moments, which uh, you know, computer games for me can can absolutely do. Uh, 
Yeah, wonderful. So t- yeah, tell tell us about the first one, which is a an early computer game. What is the game, and why do you love it? Yes, it's a game called Wizardry. was on the Apple IIe. It was a, a role-playing game. I suppose it was the one of the first role-playing games ever where you you went on an adventure down and into a dungeon of fighting monsters and collecting treasure. I mean, I could be describing a role-playing game that was released yesterday. <laughs> but this would, because it was one of the first, it had this magic to it. I mean, the graphics were absolutely you know primitive in their wireframe walls and um you know there was no there was there was absolutely no real graphics it was all it was all green screen and and as kind of text <laughs> but it fired up my imagination like nothing else and in fact there have been many personal sacrifices I've made playing designing and developing computer games. And this was one of the first ones. I remember I had a second date with this with a girl, and I was supposed to meet her in a restaurant. I I just got too involved in wizardry. <laughs> you stood her up. Stood her up, and uh, I probably you know that my life branched. I also remember that the game was played on floppy disk, and my my wizardry floppy disk. Corrupted, so I drove all the way to Nottingham. Where were you living at the time? I was living in in Guildford at the time. Guildford, right? Yeah, you know, I drove all the way up to Nottingham at like two o'clock in the morning, just to, so I could, could get my disc repaired by someone and carry on playing. And I still, I still am trying to grasp that feeling I have had of immersion in wizardry. It was really absolutely incredible you know the feeling of tension and of, of turning a corridor and seeing a monster which you knew you couldn't defeat um you know i'd, I'd still love to empathize to get back to that feeling that i had uh, i had back then for the first time mm. did you do you feel like you got close with the fable games which i suppose are the closest to maybe wizardry i i, I certainly i certainly thought of a lot of moments yeah, I mean, Wizardry was very, very simple. It was, you know, mm. going down in a dungeon, fighting monsters, opening chests, getting treasure, going back to the surface, and saving. And when you, with Wizardry, you had it didn't save continuously. You had to get out of the dungeon for it to save. And that tension that was there, I mean, I, you, there was certainly I remembered that when when thinking about Fable. Yeah. Wonderful. So tell me, did you did you grow up in Guildford? I grew up in um, actually up to the age of seven. I was in uh, Birmingham. Mm-hmm. I lived in Birmingham. Then my parents came down to Farnborough, which is uh, the town next next up uh, uh, Guildford, and um, I spent the rest of my uh, most of my youth growing up there. And Guildford was just the lucky place. I managed to find an office. 
which had no rent on it. I didn't have to pay rent on that. How, how come? Oh, it's because my my business partner that I set the first company up with was uh, worked in a shop and they had a room above the shop, which they said I could just use. So, you know, it was just one of <laughs> Moved <those>. in. <laughs> So before all of that, did you what? Uh, what computers did you have in there in the house when you were a kid? Did you have any? Uh, the only computer no, there were there were no such things as computers when I was a kid. The, the only <laughs> the only thing the first time I saw anything that could play anything as semblance of a computer game was a uh, something called a Binatone Play. I think it was called, and you could play tennis. On it, like and, a pong yeah. knockoff type uh, thing. Like it was, it was pong. It was, yeah. it was the early pong. And I, I actually stole money from my grandmother's purse to to uh, go and buy it. I was so, you know, it was like this this incredible moment where I saw this thing and I had to have it. Uh, I paid my grandmother back. Yeah. How did you explain the appearance of this machine then in your house? I, I, that was the, it, it was under my bed for a long time. You know. <laughs> I had to steal it into the house. Um, I was probably uh, 15 or 16 at the time, yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, I took it home, played a few games of, of Pong, thought it was very boring, took the machine apart, and it never worked again. So, right. but, but it lit that little fire inside me, which, which, has, which has guided the whole of my life. Mm. And then you go on, I mentioned in the introduction, to design this this text-based entrepreneur sim, um, that's a long way from Pong. Why did you decide to make that? It, it was a kind of a, a convoluted story, but I, I had started a business up and this business sold floppy disks to schools. And my idea was, oh, well, you know, why would they want to order floppy disks for me? I'll write a few, a few bits of software, mm. like educational software, and then they get the software free on the discs if they and that started me down this route of thinking well you know i could maybe i could do a, a proper game and so it, that gave me the confidence to write a business simulator now simon that was probably one of the worst design decisions i've ever made back in those days i mean if you just if i just have a few aliens going across the screen which you shot down it would probably would have sold thousands but i thought you know maybe you know games could be so much deeper and this was so early on in the industry's uh, life cycle that i thought you know i should write something about what i'm doing at the moment which was running a, a small business and uh, <laughs> it still was it, I, it was a cute little game but uh you know no one wants to buy a business simulator they, they wanted to shoot aliens so you're very right young at this time you obviously had a entrepreneurial spirit yourself did you did you leave school um, at sixteen to set up this floppy disk business? Um, no, I left school. When I left school, I I was just rubbish at school and didn't really get any qualifications at school. Mm. I kind of realised very soon after leaving school, you you just can't go out into the world without something. So I I went got some A levels and then went off and did a, a degree. At Southampton, um, and um, and and sort of train myself up. <laughs> but as soon as I left university, then I, you know, started off um, after 
you know, a bit of a convoluted route, started my own, uh, my own business, completely and utterly green, uh, without any knowledge of, of, of how to be a businessman. But I always had this fascination for entrepreneurship. Yeah. And do you, I read that you were expecting this game, The Entrepreneur, to, to be a bestseller. And is it true that you, you widened your letterbox? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I was convinced that, you know, oh God, you know, surely, you know, I will have to do is take an advert out and, uh, in a, in one of the computer game magazines, and and people are going to see it, and I'm going to get tens of thousands of orders, and so I'd actually phone the post office to warn them that there could be no. extra people on, and you know what? And I thought, how's the post going to get in? So I widen the post box. I did all those ridiculous things, and when two letters floated through the letter box, and one of them had suspended. I had handwriting suspiciously similar to my mother's. I I realised the truth of the situation is that, that you know, just like anything, it's going to be about. Doesn't matter how good the game is, if people don't know about it. It's it's not worth its salt. Yeah. yeah. And then, so you immediately move from this to selling cans of Heinz baked beans, uh, exporting them. How how on earth did that come about? And how how successful were you at it? Well, how to how to boil this down. So basically, I really, really liked, fancied this girl called Camille, and she had, you know, and I, you know, she was just way above my league. Um, but um, she's a big baked beans fan, was she? She wasn't a baked beans fan, but I met her father, and he said, "Oh, you know, you you should set up a business importing and exporting stuff." And uh, I so because I wanted to get in Camille's good books, I did set up the business. But uh, the only people I could find that wanted us to import and export uh, stuff were importing and exporting Smedley's baked beans from the UK to the Middle East. Um, and uh, we we uh, made like like a penny per you know, 100 tins or something. So really cool. a very hand-to-mouth existence at the time. And again, it was something I leapt into, Simon, without any without any kind of research or, or, or business acumen. It was just something I, I, I just did. And I think when you're in your 20s, that sort of ridiculous, foolish um, risk-taking you can do. Yeah, yeah. That's some of how you learn about how the world works, isn't it? It's just by doing it. So, so at what point in that story do you get this letter, I suppose, or phone call from Commodore? Yeah, I mean, it was a very weird time because, you know, things weren't going well on the baked bean side. We were called Taurus Impacts. Uh, that was the name of the company. And then suddenly there was this phone call, you know, because there was no emails back then. There was a phone call saying, you know, we heard you a company, we're doing this new console, we'd love to invite you in and, um, you know, to have a look at uh, the new console. So we went in, uh, we were treated amazingly well. I mean, they sent a car to pick us up, they showed us around their factory, they showed us the machine, and then it was only after you know, all this um, pampering that they uh, that I realised that they had got the wrong company. There was 
we were called Taurus, spelt like the star sign, and they they were after a, another company called Taurus, spelt like the the ring T O R U S. So I, you know, I had the crisis of conscience, thinking, should I tell them? But I decided against telling them, and they sent a whole load of development machines. And then I thought, well, Jesus, we're going to have to, we're going to have to put something on these. And um, for some reason, I chose a database uh, to put on there. But it did start this relationship with Commodore and and this deeper knowledge of the Amiga. Mm-hmm. Um, when they first released the Commodore Amiga, it was, it was supposed to be a competitor to the PC mm-hmm. and not a games machine, but it very quickly turned into a games machine. Mm-hmm. Do you think they were hoping you would make games for it? Or how did they respond when you sent them this management system? Um, well, no. In fact, they are just strongly directed as we don't want this to be a games machine. Right, okay. We want it to be a a home computer for you know people who uh, you know people who are just getting their first computer and games trivialized it back then but <clears throat> i think they realized after a few months that it wasn't a competitor to the pc um but it would it would have made a pretty good games machine and and um that gave me the excuse really to to think about you know, returning to my love and passion, which was games. I hadn't done it mm. real games since since the first business sim, the entrepreneur. Uh, I'd done and that done terribly, but you know, again, in pictures of of youth, I, I just dived in and made my first real game for it. Yeah. Did you Did you ever come clean about the fact that you actually sold baked beans? I can't recall actually having that. I mean, I was a ridiculous character back then, I've got to say, Simon, because I can remember that the Commodore, you know, this was a, the first real corporation that we'd ever deal with. I, I remember them kept badgering us. You know, they, they knew we were doing this database software and they wanted a demo of it. And so they kept uh, badgering us, you know, and phoning up, when are you going to come in? When are we going to see a demo? Can we come and see you? And they they phoned up, you know, almost every day, and that it got to a point where it run out of excuses. <laughs> so for some reason, I was on the phone to them, and I, they said, you know, what, what, you know, you missed your meeting today. What happened? And I said, oh, I've lost my thumb. My thumb got cut off when I slammed it in a car door, which was. Oh. That's an unsustainable lie. <laughs> I'd never go and see them now because I have my thumb back. I mean, it was totally unsustainable, but a real moment of panic. Oh, my gosh. Right, let's come to your, your second game then, Peter. So, um, yeah, this is from the uh, from the early 2000s. Tell us, tell us about this one, please. Yeah, this is Half-Life, uh, Half-Life 2. It was, I can remember the demo for Half-Life 2 and seeing it. And, you know, I was well into the computer games industry by then. And, um, but what they showed, the, the, the physics, the, 
the technology was just awe-inspiring and they did this magical demo at a, a show called E3, I think it was. When I started playing it, I became, as I do, I'm a very, very obsessive character. So if I start playing a game and I'm obsessed with it, I got totally obsessed with it. I can remember I had my, he must have been about a year old son sitting on my lap <laughs> while I was playing, while I was playing Half-Life 2. I mean, terrible parenting. And I don't blame uh, if, any, if, if anyone from Mum's Net wants to, <laughs> wants to flame me. But um, <laughs> don't invite that. Yeah, it was uh, it, what a magical, incredible game. Not mm. only did it have amazing pace to it, amazing gameplay flow to it, but it had characters who had faces for the first time that really showed emotion. <laughs> and they showed emotion at you where whatever you were doing so you if you there was these magical moments that if you did ridiculous things then the characters in the game would notice and really for me i think that was the really one of the first times that i saw a real um, the real opportunity for emotion in computer mm. games yeah. and for storytelling in computer games more than just action depth which um up to then, eluded uh, 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 it. Games. Yeah, it was really a technical marvel, wasn't it? As well with the the gravity gun that enabled you to pick up oh, objects and fire them. That was magical, wasn't it? Yeah, it really was. Yeah. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Tell me about how you came to set up Bullfrog then, which I guess is a little after you've you've made your database software and what makes you jump right in with, with games. So I, I remember that this moment really when I walked into the office and there was only there was only three of us in the office. There was me, there was someone called Glenn Corpus, and there was someone called Kevin Donkin. And um I walked in one morning and uh, Glenn was he was the artist, sort of uh, an artist, programmer sort of person, and he had drawn something on the um, on the screen, and they were these little little blocks, a little bit like Lego, if you imagine Lego, but isometrically drawn. And I said to him, "Oh, give give those blocks to me. I'd you know I'll play around with something." And then 
him and I started making this game. We didn't know what the game we were making at the time was. And every day we would come in and, you know, I would code a bit more. He would do a bit more of the graphics. We linked our two Amigas together with an something called an RS-232 cable. Um, we had, you had to solder some of the wires so that we could play at multiplayer. Yes. And then over the space of about six months when we should have been, you know, working on the acquisition of the database, we built this game. And we really loved playing it. Uh, this was Populous, we should say, the, the so-called uh, god game in which you're trying to smite the followers of your rival deity while um, swelling the numbers of, uh, of your own faithful followers. As I said, we didn't, we didn't design it. We, it just got created. Mm. You know, every day we put a new feature in. And then we found a publisher for that game. Yeah, after going to a lot of publishers and getting turned down, and that publisher was Electronic Arts, mm. they released the game. We had no idea, you know, my only expectations was the expectation I had really the entrepreneur and selling two copies. And <laughs> I can remember the publisher phoning us up and say, and said, how's it feel to be a millionaire? You know, the game had sold unbelievably well. It accounted for a a third of EA's revenue and, you know, it got incredible review scores. What the publisher had omitted to tell us is the contract that we had signed meant that we wouldn't get any money. The money we did get was was like 8% of, of what the sales actually were. So I think it was a little bit of an exaggeration to say we're millionaires, but mm. it firmly set me on the path of... of uh, being in the computer games industry. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, it must have changed your life because, I mean, even 8% of 4 million or whatever is, is pretty decent, isn't it? How, how well did you did you cope with that change in fortunes as a young person? So one of the things you've got to realise is that up until then, I had, you know, I was, I'd run my life particularly badly. You know, I was up to my neck in debt. I had bought a house because that's what everyone else was doing at the time. It was the middle of the house buying frenzy. I had, don't think I'd made a single mortgage payment. I'd found the trick with credit cards so that if you applied for one credit card and then applied for a second credit card, you could pay off the first credit card from the other credit card. So basically, I had no money at all. So that first life-changing thing was not to be afraid of the postman. Yeah. Um, you know, there is this fear that you have when you're in debt that every time the postman comes, it's only bad news is going to arrive. So that was the first thing. And the second thing was, right, you know, now I can build, now I can build a proper development team. Now I can start working on games which, which are going to be truly amazing and exciting. And so we took the money and we built up, we founded and built up Bullfrog and moved from the little free office I had over this hi-fi shop into the Surrey Research Park. We had a proper office. We we were awful tenants, but we had a proper office and we we started properly developing computer games. Yeah, yeah. 
did you uh, did you make any extravagant, silly purchases though? No, I I, I mean even back then we uh, you know I still didn't have I just still didn't have much money really you know because firstly you, you know even though it was you know they had said you know how's it feel to me yeah the reality was you know after the money came in it was you know it was thousands but it wasn't millions mm, yeah so there wasn't that wasn't the time for silly purchases or anything it was the time to to kind of fulfill my dream of having a company which meant something mm. and so i think i don't think I, I i bought anything particularly i think i moved house from a one bedroom house into a two bedroom house but that was just about it. Right, let's come to your your third game then, uh, Peter, which is a, a an absolute classic by Fumito Ueda. Tell us about this one. Um this is Ico. was on the PlayStation it was it's a game which completely changed my view of what computer games was it you know back then uh, when I first started playing Ico it was it was the games industry was starting to consider there may be a formula for com- for computer games you know adversaries and they you know they they should be tension and drama and then yeah. lots of people talking about war and and death and and Ico came along and it was a game where you had to lead this ghost which was the ghost of a girl through this castle it had it had no no dialogue to speak of but the the act of touching another computer game uh, character that was vulnerable and needed your help was really meaningful to me. Yeah, you lead her by the hand, don't you? You led her by the hand, and she was, she was. Well, some people would have called her useless without you, but she needed you. And to have a computer game really pull out from you the emotion of being needed and wanted and and important to to another character was what very significant and it it has and still remains one of the best game endings i've ever seen um so it was a truly magical experience and many you know i've thought in the games that i've been lucky enough to be involved in i've thought many times back to those emotional moments when i uh, when i've been designing games that you shouldn't just because there is a a rule or a, a perceived way of doing something in a computer game doesn't make it right. And if you if you think creatively and disruptively, you can you can come up with some truly interesting experiences. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you bring up the uh, the ending actually because I think that director he's so good at at endings in a medium that is typically very bad at endings because 
you know, it's so they're so systemic that normally, you know, you give the player all the things to play with, and then you don't really know how to wrap the story up. But but uh, you know, his third game as well, the Last Guardian, it just has one of the most meaningful endings I think in a video game I've ever seen. So yeah, it's funny as well. A Last Guardian was pretty meaningful to me, but it was one thing. One thing about Ico is it was a, a quite an easy game to play. It, you know, the puzzles were very, very intriguing. And, you know, there was no YouTube back then that you could just refer to. You had to solve it yourself. But I always found Last Guardian just too hard. I wanted so much to love it, but I just couldn't love it because it was just a little bit too hard. I had kept falling off that bloody pigeon thing all the time. <laughs> really, really. Cat, dog, pigeon, isn't it? Yeah. So, so tell me about uh, the the moment you come to found Lionhead. Why did you Why did you decide to to switch companies or or start something new? What had happened is that Electronic Arts had acquired Bullfrog, and that was when I had life changing amounts of money back then. And ridiculously, I think Simon, I had thought, well, you know, I'm going to I'm going to find about the secrets of the business world. I'm, you know, I'm now, you know, what well, part of the deal? I was made a um, senior vice president of Electronic Arts, and um, and you know, I, I really thought there was some Illuminati that was running, you know, American corporations that I was going to witness and see. The reality was, it was bloody hard work, and it meant I had to do a hell of a lot of travelling over to. The west coast of america you know i was over there two in a, in a month two of two of the weeks in a month i was over in over in san francisco and i i just lost touch with the thing that i love so much i lost touch with my design the ability to design things i lost touch with the ability to code things and um you know i was getting pretty miserable about the whole thing and then and then i hid myself away and uh, developed a game called theme park and i uh, at that point i kind of realized bullfrog that i founded it, it, it's now 150 people and i don't know the names of half of those people and i hankered for that small company Everyone knows each other. Everyone, you, you know, really uh, understands how it, everyone works. And I hankered after that. So mm. I handed my notice in a bullfrog and, uh, and then the next day set up this company called Lionhead. And the idea was to have, was to have a small 20 person team of people who are just fanatically in love with what they do. And that's, that's what Lionhead did. It, it it set itself up and it created its first game, and that game was called Black and White. And um, that was ridiculously ambitious at the time, and yeah. uh, and and it destroyed our lives. The creating this thing that was almost impossible to create on the the machines that were around then. But you know, I'm incredibly proud of what we did. Mm. Just moving the clock forward slightly. Do you remember the first time you saw Fable? So that that was a game. I understand it that came from the, that uh, Lionhead acquired. Is that right? Or what's the story behind it? 
what it was is that I was working on a game. I was working on a game called Dungeon Keeper. And working on that game with me was Simon and Dean Carter. And while we were working on that game, which was another game, which was, you know, crunch hell, we were talking about role-playing games and, you know, how wouldn't it be great if we could create a role-playing game? And the things that we all agreed about, the role-playing games back then were just way too complex and staty and numbery and not enough about what a true role-playing game should be, which is rather than you play the role of something, the game reflects the way you play. So <laughs> we brainstormed this idea. And then when we set up Lionhead, Simon and Dean said, oh, you know, oh, you know, we remember our conversations. Why don't we, we'd love to, we'd love to do this. So we created this satellite system where Big Blue Box was a satellite of Lionhead Studios. Lionhead, I, mm. I can't remember the, the share of what it owned, but we would help Big Blue Box um, develop the game. And that seemed like a really good idea at the time, but actually, in reality, you know, making a, any game is just an almost impossible feat. Mm-hmm. And that that divide between Lionhead and Big Blue Box just wasn't working well. So we melded Big Blue Box into Lionhead so that we could focus on creating the game. And, and you know, that's exactly what we did. You, you spoke uh, at the beginning of the chat about how you, you was, became well-known. And I suppose it was at this time of getting quite excitable in interviews and, and uh, preview events and talking about features that weren't yet viable or, or maybe perhaps even sort of internally agreed upon did that, oh, that no there was some let's get this clear i would be in an interview like with you with a journalist mm. and they would ask me a question and i'd think hmm, that's a really good idea and i'd say yes yes we're gonna have you know flying pigs or we're gonna have you know, and and because I was thinking, I was designing the game as I was talking to the press. That's that's what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. You know, it, in in today's world, it, that is total insanity. Well, you I think not pr- even think of daring to rear your creative head above the parapet in today's world. And those people who do often get a shot, a shot down. So, I you know, I don't try and hide the fact that I was. I was crazy, and I think you're what you're getting from this interview, Simon, is that I am someone who just leaps into the into into the fight of whether it's creating a computer game or a business or a, without really much thought of risks or or what the problems were. And for me, doing press interviews back then was all about showing the passion that you had for a game the passion for the thing that you were were creating. And what I should have said in every interview is, look, everything I say, take with a pinch of salt. You know, I may not end up, I may not even tell the rest of the team about it. And when I used to go back after interviews, a lot of the team members would say, well, Peter, we didn't know that we were going to have this feature in the game until they read it in the press. So it was it was atrocious, and I have an enormous amount of, reg- of regret for it. Yeah, so I, you know, I feel remorse for what I did, but you, you know, I think one of the jobs of back then was to show the world how amazing 
it was the design process was of making these these games which never existed before you that's what yeah. you can remember Simon is back in the 1990s and 2000s we were creating genres almost every almost every year and when you created something it it was an act of true invention and yeah. and it's easy to get yourself lost in the passion well i totally understand that and i think people you know it was exciting to read you talking about the games that were coming out and that sense of you might say anything but i am also thinking about as you say the people back having to implement these ideas it must have caused some tension they must they can't have just been like oh peter the things you say to the press uh, you know did it did it cause any big arguments when people are suddenly having to implement these things that you're announcing on the fly they, 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 it, it, it did for sure and you know i think one of the role of, of one of the roles of a designer is to justify their ideas however crazy and wherever they come from and it is atrocious that you, you you know, I'd be in an interview and think of an idea in the middle of an interview, sometimes inspired by the questions I have being asked. But you know what, Simon? I still do that today. I still, you know, bounce into the office in the morning and said, I had a dream last night. We should do this. And that's just as fucking aggravating as, <laughs> you know, someone in front of journalists over in, in, in Los Angeles. You know, designing especially when you're trying to design something which is different, which you can't say, well, we're going to make the game like this game, but better. Mm -hmm. Then you, 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 you are at the whims of your totally half-insane creative mind, which doesn't, unfortunately, work by sitting down in front of a blank sheet of paper and writing all the ideas down. That's, mm -hmm. for me, it's not the way it works. It, it, and... It does drive people insane. I mean, what drives them even more insane is, and I hate doing it, but you have to do it, is when someone's worked incredibly hard on something and it just doesn't fit. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't fit in the in the in the puzzle of the game. And you've got to turn around to those people and say, Look, I'm really sorry, but this doesn't work. And they justifiably turn around to you and say, but but you you told me to do that three <laughs> months ago. And you have to turn around and say, well, I was wrong. I'm sorry. It doesn't fit. The game has, you know, creating a game is is, is it's like it, the act of exploring. You know, if when you're exploring, you're not sure what you're going to find around the next corner, <laughs> whether it's going to be a, a sand, you know, a quicksand or whether it's going to be a beautiful lagoon or you know, you're not sure. You know, developing a game idea is feels like exploring. Mm. You 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 do it step by step, mm. but that doesn't justify the terribleness of of finding out about an idea in the press or or me having to turn around and saying, "Sorry, that's not going to fit." I I mean, I have had death threats, and you know, I can under, totally understand it. Well, you mean from staff members? No, not from staff. All right, but from 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 the public. Oh who, right, oh gosh. Yeah. Right, let's come to your let's come to your fourth game then Peter. Tell it tell us about this one. This is probably should be recognized as the greatest game ever designed and ever made. And it's called it's called Minecraft.
And if any game has changed the world, changed the, 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 the view of computer games in the world, it's probably Minecraft. I can remember being, you know, because at the time I was a Microsoft exec executive and I can remember being at Microsoft and people laughing that, oh, Minecraft doesn't have any tutorial, it doesn't have any adversaries, it doesn't have any story, it, 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 it's, it's, it's rubbish graphics, but they missed the point. It was a game which allowed players true freedom. <laughs> and it it nurtured that freedom and it, it, it just it was just like this flash of lightning in a clear blue a blue sky there was computer games before minecraft and computer games after and what it stands testimony to that game is that it still hasn't been usurped people have tried to make similar games with better graphics they've tried to make games with better tutorials and adversaries and weapons but they miss the magic of what Minecraft is and probably one of the most amazing moments in playing Minecraft is me and my son used to play it together and when he was about eight or nine I suppose or maybe a bit younger than that um, and I can remember when inadvertently we set up we set a tree of uh, a flame and the, the the forest fire started approaching this house that we'd taken a week to build <laughs> and that moment that moment of feeling of sheer panic and loss it was like our actual house was burning down right you know that it was absolutely incredible what what an achievement that to that game is and you, you know I, I i think it deserves to be recognized as a true piece of art because that's what I, th I think amazing i feel for your son playing playing half-life 2 age one on your knee and then and then the trauma of losing his house in minecraft well he, the person who just stuck his head around the office at the door there is my son he's he's working here while he's at the university oh brilliant yeah he's a passionate gamer yeah Okay, so let's uh, th tell me about how you how you came to leave Lionhead. Was that was that your decision to do that? Yes, it was my decision. I mean, the kind of the same thing had happened again. You know, Lionhead was founded, and the thought was to keep the company small and you know get you know passionate people together. But there's this irresistible urge, Simon, to grow a company. And, you know, we had to grow it because we merged with uh, Big Blue Box and then we grew it again because we took on more projects. So it seemed like in the blink of an eye, it went from 25 amazing, incredible people to over 350. Mm. And I was flying over to Microsoft had acquired the studio um, and I was flying over to Redmond an awful lot. I lost contact with designing and I was creative director for Europe. And again, I realized, you know, what am I doing? I'm doing His history repeating, isn't it? It is. Well, you know, I think if this, in this interview says anything, it just says what a fractured person I am. <laughs> you know, I just get so passionate about things, I'd lose myself. And 
But then when I well, I wake up and uh, I, I realize it's it's not what I want. So, you know, after after running a lion head, I I I decided to have my notes in. I left on the Monday morning and started twenty two cans in the in the afternoon. Never having more than twenty five people this time, <laughs> you know, to do exactly the same again. Mm-hmm. So the the company's first game was called uh, Curiosity. It was a bit of a phenomenon, I would say, because it was in the relatively early days of the iPhone coming out. For anyone who doesn't know, there was this floating cube and constructed of millions of tiny blocks and players around the world would chip away at them. And the idea was that whoever chipped away the final block would reveal what was at the centre of the cube and win a life-changing prize. What are your what are your memories of that time? So the experiment was this: is you know we we'd started up twenty two cans, and I didn't have a game in mind. I I I just I I was just sold completely by Steve Jobs standing on stage with the iPhone, and the this one overarching thought was in my mind is yes. Everyone in the world is going to have a gaming console in their pocket. But all those people in the world, they've never played a computer game before in their lives. So what is the minimum motivation that we can give to someone that has got access to games the whole time? You know, a lot of computer games back uh, back in the kind of uh, two, early 2000s, were and I'd done games like this, they required you to sit and focus and be immersed in the world. You know, like half you know, like Half-Life 2. You know, it required there was a story and a narrative. You couldn't just dip in and dip out. But the realization is you've got a phone in your pocket, you could be sitting on the bus and you could whip the phone out and do something and put it back. And that required a completely mindset change in thinking. So I thought you know what makes sense is to do these experiments. We'll do these experiments, and the first experiment we'll do is about motivation. What is the minimum thing I can say to a player to motivate them to do the most banal thing? And so I thought, right, the minimum, as I say, is there's something wonderful, life-changing inside. This is Peter Molyneux talking, so... I'm probably going to use amazing, life-changing, and world-shattering because that's the dialogue, unfortunately, that decides to come out of my mouth when I talk to the press. Um, and there's something amazing inside. All you have to do is work together, all of you work together, to tap away. And we released it, and much to our shock, within an hour, there were 200,000 people tapping away at the cube. Mm-hmm. I mean, we I, I honestly thought there would be about 2,000 two to 5,000 in total over the whole experience. So we had to increase, no one realized this, we increased the, the size of the cube massively because... Right, so it would take longer. Well, I know, it's, you know, it's all going to be over this afternoon. <laughs> So we managed to increase the size. You of- needed a bigger letterbox after all. <laughs> yeah, a bigger letterbox. <laughs> and this magical thing happened is we didn't we didn't plan, we didn't design, we didn't think about this, but people worked together 
to tap these pictures out on the side of the cube. So we we had initially we had lots of penis pictures. Of course. People tapped away, you know, penises. Then we had a group of Italians that every day would come on and change all the penises to palm trees. Um, we had seven proposals of marriage. We had the the complete retelling of the 9-11 disaster. Oh, gosh. I mean, there were these amazing, you know, people would be tapping away and they, they, they'd cut without any other form of communication at all, they would create these communal uh, pictures. And, you know, the, 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 the cube started to shrink down. I mean, we, we'd increased the number of cubes to trillions. Mm-hmm. And, and eventually, we, you know, the centre of the cube was reached and someone in Scotland, um, unfortunately, he was one of the person who, it was the first hat virtually that he had done on the cube that he got to the centre of the cube. <laughs> and Very smart way to play the game, I'd say. Probably, yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> So we an- announced that he was the winner, and we announced that he would be getting a share of the profits from our next from the next game that we released. Mm. Uh, we were going to release, not that we knew what it. I think we did know what it was then. It was a game called Goddess. Mm. This is where the controversy really kicked in, I think, wasn't it? Because you know people felt a little like, oh, it was the promise of some future benefit rather than an actual tangible benefit. Yeah, I mean, it was, you, you know, it was my fault, Simon. It was my fault for over-egging the pudding. I don't know why saying comes into mind, but I think it's a very applicable one. I still stand by the, the innovation of the experiment. It was just the, it was just the final prize that was, that was, um, you know, that was a fault, really. Mm. If you could do it again, what would you offer? Well, I think, again, if I was doing the experiment again, and I have considered doing uh, another experiment. I had I had three more experiments planned, but the controversy of the first one meant that we, you couldn't do, do any more. I had thought of doing Curiosity again. I'd ask myself, right, what is the minimum prize that we can we can say. So if I said, haven't you already done that? Right. There's a, there's a box of Quality Street in the middle of of the cube, and someone's going to win it. Would you still tap? And I think people probably would. I, I I don't think it was about the prize. It was all about the journey. <laughs> yes. To, uh, to the prize. So I think it I think it it would be in it would be interesting. Yeah. I mean, you could justifiably especially today's world because we didn't really we didn't make any money out of um out of out of curiosity really i think you could today with the uh, with with the advert revenue that you get you, you know give a substantial cash prize but uh, but then i think probably it would be categorized as gambling Right. Mm. Now people would start employing bots to try and win, wouldn't they? And all that stuff. So probably be some um sweat farm somewhere. But it was just what we did have. We had an enormous number of people say, "I use Curiosity to get sleep at night." Right. Mm. Um, they've, they've just found the you know the the sound effects and the, the visuals just incredibly relaxing. And I think a lot of the time for mobile gaming, I think. 
relaxation or escape is, is what people want. <laughs> they they don't want necessarily want drama and you know excitement. They want <laughs> they want a way to to escape. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we better come to your fifth and your final game, Peter. Tell us about this one. Well. I, I mean, this is unashamedly because I'm playing it at the moment, but it is um, Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. Um, <clears throat> what a game! <laughs> what a game! I mean, it's it's huge, it's vast, it's it allows you to do something which is kind of similar to Minecraft in a way. It allows you to approach the game under your own agenda. Mm. You kind of feel like you have to go out and get ready to go out and face things because you think it's time to do, not because the game's prompting to use it. Mm. And it's got just a wonderful crafting system and they 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 mm. they've they've got a just a super crafting system. The story I mean Zelda games aren't really strong on story. It's Princess Zelda getting kidnapped again. Um they think just some guards maybe next time to protect her, but you know, um, that's that's not important. It's not the point, is it? No. You know the the familiarity of this world because I've played all the Zelda games, whilst being fresh and different and funny and amusing. And very often, I think computer games forget that they need to be funny. <laughs> they are, and they forget almost about entertainment. So it ticks all the awesome ones in spades. <laughs> Yeah, wonderful. I think you're the first person to pick it, but you certainly won't be the last, I'm sure. So, Right, Peter, let's look at your console then. So we've got uh, Wizardry, Ico, Half-Life 2, Minecraft, and The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. What a great console. How are you feeling about that? I'm feeling pretty good. I mean, I, I just, you know, I just hope that um, this console is powerful enough to and all of those. Oh, it certainly will be. Because I'm going to be flitting between them constantly. <laughs> we need a name for your console to to market it to the world. Have you got any ideas for what we could call it? I think we should call it the Exaggerator. <laughs> yes, <laughs> very good. Well, just before I let you go, Peter, the, um, I'm sure you're aware of the Twitter account, Peter Molidew. Uh, which has been around for a very long time now, since uh, 2009. Basically, for anyone who doesn't know, it's sort of one-sentence ideas on Twitter of uh, uh, extravagant game ideas, I'd say, or, or sort of slightly arcane ones. And uh, like a recent post they put, imagine if in Street Fighter Six you couldn't select certain characters on particular days because they have to pick their kid up from school or they have have a fridge being delivered that, that morning. Um, when you first heard about that Twitter account, were you able to take it in the spirit? I think it was intended, a sort of affectionate kind of teasing, or did it sting at all? 
no, I mean, it was, you know, it, it kind of came about at the height of of my fame, if you like, and it, it, it just felt like part of it. I mean, I tell you one thing, and I've met the guy, um, he came over to, to 22 Cans um, about nine years ago. Mm. Um, he's a super smart guy, and some of his one-liners should be turned into games. I mean, truly, I mean... Can you give an example? I, I can't remember any of the, off the top of my head, but I mean, I've, I remember thinking, you know, Grant, that's a really good idea, really disruptive, you know, good idea. And, um, you know, long way that sort of parody continue, I, I, I think. Yeah. Well, Peter, thank you for doing this. Thank you for being so... Um open-hearted i think with your your you know discussion and for also telling us your story really appreciate it it's been great thank you very much indeed simon Peter Molyneux, everyone. What a lot of fun that was. I have a feeling that we're going to be seeing some uh, some new stories on the internet from, from this episode. Of course, new stories follow Peter Molyneux around whenever he speaks to a journalist on the record. But even so, I think this episode has some real doozies in it. The fact that he stole money from his from his poor dear grandmother to buy his very first Binotone console. Uh, I've not read that ever before. Nor, in fact, that when Peter was an executive at Microsoft, all of the other Microsoft executives were poking fun at Minecraft for being, uh, you know, not having any tutorials and having bad graphics. Of course, Microsoft go on to purchase Minecraft for $2.5 billion. So uh, some executives must have had to eat their hats at some point. I doubt we'll ever hear that story. But anyway, uh, nice to get a glimpse of it from Peter. When Peter was telling the story of how uh, his his early game Populous became a multi-million seller, I did ask him whether he spent his newfound fortune on any, made any unwise decisions. And he slightly dodged that because, of course, it sounded like the royalty deal with EA was uh, was a little bit punitive and they only got 8% or a small amount of whatever the money they could have had. Um, but of course, he then goes on to say how he, he made all of his money with Lionhead. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't press him there to see whether he bought a you know, a leaky yacht or anything like that. But anyway, I'm sure he did make some regretful decisions from, uh, from, from us getting to know him a little bit in that conversation. Uh, really appreciate him wearing his heart on his sleeve, though. I, I get the sense that Peter cannot help but be quite open and honest, uh, perhaps a little bit like Charles Cecil in that, uh, that sort of uh, very vivacious characters from the British games industry of that era um, full of anecdotes I'm sure we could have another hour with Peter and not get anywhere close to the end of the anecdotes that he has uh, to share but anyway that will have to do us for now Uh, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did I wasn't sure if I was going to get Peter because of course uh, about seven or eight years ago he did he did say that he wasn't going to talk to journalists anymore but um, since I recorded that I think he has done one other Uh, interview at some sort of games event of course very different kind of interview to the one that you've heard here so it seems like he is talking to journalists again and uh they his studio 22 cans has a has a game that's on the boil as it were so i'm sure we'll be hearing more from him 
in the weeks and months to come. Uh, yeah, we've got uh, we've got some great guests coming up this month. Um, next week, I will let you know now. We've got Clint Hocking coming next week, who is uh, the the director of Far Cry 2, the very beloved game. You can go back and listen to the episode uh, with Tom Bissell, where I discuss Far Cry 2 with him. It was one of Tom's choices. Uh, Clint has had a very distinguished career, and he is now a creative director on the uh, the Assassin's Creed that's going to be coming out at some point in the future. Uh, it's a great episode. Uh, I strongly advise you to subscribe to the podcast. If this is the first one you've ever listened to, uh, then do subscribe. And of course, go back and listen. We've uh, we've got some great episodes in the back catalogue, some people that you don't often hear from. Phil Fish, don't often hear from him. You can go and listen to his episode from The Creator Affairs, as well as, of course, uh, we've got voice actors, you know, game makers, actors, comedians, musicians, and lots more where that came from in the coming weeks and months to come. I hope you enjoy My Perfect Console. If you are, please pop along to Apple Podcasts, leave us a quick review. You could do that right now while you're listening to this if you want, or give us a star rating on Spotify, something like that. It does help more people to find the podcast. Um, you know, we've got lots of listeners all around the world, but it would be nice to have have some more. I think, I think the content's good, you know. Uh, if that's not too brazen to say. But uh, yes, it would be nice if more people knew about it. Please do tell your friends. And if you want to support the podcast financially and get more involved, then head along to patreon.com forward slash myperfectconsole. There's going to be some bonus content coming down the lines. We've got some questions that were put to Clint Hocking next week by uh, Patreon supporters. That's going to be an exclusive little bonus episode. And we're doing that with uh, with guests here and there asking the Patreon supporters for their questions that are going to go out as bonus episodes. In addition to that, you also get a highlight of which guests are coming up a month in advance, as well as your episodes early and ad free. And you also get access to the lovely My Perfect Console community. Some lovely people there and uh, come and get involved. It would be lovely to have you. Uh, you can follow along on Twitter slash x at uh forward slash my perfect console and there you can just see who's coming up next week if you don't want to get involved in the whole patreon thing so yeah thanks again for your support for listening uh please do email me my perfect console at gmail.com if you've got any thoughts if you've got any suggestions for guests we have had quite a few guests on now that have been suggested by you the listeners uh, for example, Dominic Armato, the voice actor from from the Monkey Island series, he was suggested by the listener Paul Morris. I never actually thanked Paul for uh, for getting in contact and suggesting I contact Dominic, but thank you, Paul. Appreciate that. That was a good episode. Uh, so yeah, it does uh, it does work. <laughs> you give me some ideas, and I can write to them, and then hopefully people come on. That's happened with a few other cases as well. So. I will be back again next week with another guest with their five choices and one more perfect consult. Till then. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. 
Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbird styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the super light tree runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the super light tree runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a super light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Have a great week. 